I think about the conversations I've had with the two of you like 20 years ago. I was like a different person. You were different yes. people. You yeah. guys were saying crazy ass shit. <laughs> and that's, that's so were so you, wild. Chris. So were you. I've <laughs> been pretty, pretty even keel, I think. <laughs> Hi, welcome to Outrageous, our bi-weekly podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friends, Trisha in LA. Hello. And Jason in DC. Hello. Hi, everyone. Hi. Hey. Oh, I want to call Jason out immediately. We were all together, like, what, a week ago? Maybe. Ooh, and wow. Jason had dinner with our friend, Brant. And Jason publicly shamed me on a New York City subway. So I want to say, as you said last time, you're a big advocate of public shaming. And it didn't feel good. And I thought it was terrible. So that was, I feel better now. The only question I care about is, have you changed your behavior? No. In response to the public shaming. You know what? And I'm just going to admit it. Yeah. You know what? I'm I'm not only standing by, I'm doubling down. Okay. (laughs) I don't recycle. I don't. (laughs) I don't. I'm sorry. I don't want three separate bags of trash in my house. I have a very small kitchen. Like if I have like a stack of papers, I'll recycle it. Or if I just happen to have a ton of cans, I'll recycle them. But I don't separate my garbage. And then Jason thought he should shame me. And so now I have actively started littering around my neighborhood to destroy the environment quicker. So I hope you're happy. Jason, I, no, it backfired. I'll tell you what I'm not happy about. So Chris is omitting the key part that I shamed him about. So when Chris, for our audience, let me share with you. When Chris in, informed me that he had stopped recycling, and this was some months ago, this is how he introduced it. And it was actually, we were waiting for Trisha to get uh, on the podcast. We we're about to have a podcast recording. And Chris said, you know, I don't have kids. So I stopped recycling. <laughs> that is what he said. You know, this all this like now this justification around like, oh, my apartment was becoming unsanitary. Like, no, let's be honest. You don't give a fuck about the future of the planet because you're you don't have your own line of descendants. Like, let's, I kind of I like the honesty of it. it it's very honest. <laughs> Thank you, Trisha. It's very bare bones. It's like this is this is how I will conduct my life in the future. If it doesn't have a future resonance for me, then what does it matter? I mean, talk about anti-socialist. Like, through <laughs> everyone else. Fuck the oh planet. <laughs> I'm oh not recycling. God. Fuck your kids, Jason. They can you live in a trash-ridden world. I don't care. First of all, I've ridden, the back, I've ridden in your car. I've seen what your kids do in the back of the car. <laughs> I am not responsible for the trash world that your kids are living in. I will say, say that it's nice to see that there's some element of Trumpism in you after all. How dare you? How very dare you? I've never been so offended. Oh my God. First of all, okay. okay. I looked into this, right? Because now you know the process. Not much of that stuff gets recycled. On top of that, like like I said to you earlier, you have one of those uh, Chinese food containers and there's like a clump of rice in there. They can't recycle that. They throw that in the trash anyway. So now I'm like, listen, if there was like a home recycling unit that like I could throw like my plastic straws in there, whatever. And it comes out like some 
cute clip-on earrings, that'd be great. But until I can do it on my side, I I just... Can I just say, I just want to circle back to what Trisha said. So this sounds so much like, we're going to shut down the border to keep out brown people. You can't do that. Oh, well, there are also drugs coming uh, through the border, and there's also sexual trafficking. Or like, no more Muslims coming. You can't do that. Oh, okay, well, there, okay. You know- so to recap... My stance on recycling has direct connection to Islamophobia, border control, and drug trafficking. Is yep. that those are the metaphors you're using? You know what we're saying. You are ju- you 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 had a position based on your own callousness about the well-being of the future of our species, and now you're justifying it with all of these. Now that you've been shamed, instead of changing behavior, yes, you are like Trump. My God, this sounds a lot like Trump. Now that you've been shamed, instead of acknowledging that you're wrong, you've got to come up with a million other reasons why your position is okay that have nothing to do with your callousness about humanity. Oh, I'm getting so worked up. I'm about to throw down my ear earbuds get you know what get worked up you know what i'm i'm making a firm commitment right now i'm gonna destroy the planet for for you jason this is the beginning of a comic book this is an origin story this is this is unbreakable right here let me tell you something right i'm gonna personally turn the air brown and when i do i'm gonna be like it was jason (laughs) oh my god it's like the joker all over as well okay remember when you told me you were going to be vegetarian and i was like i'm gonna eat twice as many animals to make up for it and and for the past 30 years i've I've kept that (laughs) so aggressively illogical see that it's adorable. All of your stances, all your stances, Jason, are destroying the world. And I, I'm your counterbalance. <laughs> True. So there it is. Oh, God. I'm That's so glad great. we had a nice aggressive start to this. No, podcast. no kidding. I, you know, I literally, I literally last night watched Fantastic Beasts, the second one. And, you know, we're not clear yet about how, like, Dumbledore and Grindelwald, uh, you know, how they became enemies instead of this really close friends. And, like, it, was, it must have been a conversation like this. It's just oh. like this. Oh, Wait, Fantastic Beasts? That's Harry Potter? And it's, pre- it's a prequel to Harry Potter. Isn't that that movie about that little black girl in New York? No. No. That's the other movie. Well, Eve's, what are you talking about? Eve's Bayou? What, what no, you Beast about? of um, something. something the Beast of the Southern. Oh, the something yeah, about Southern. Oh, right. Yeah. Beast of the Southern Wild. Yeah. That was like that. Yeah. Quick, quick, um, quick. Mm, Miss Wallace, that little girl. Gravangene. Gravangene. Say it again. Gravangene, I think it is. Gravangene? I think Quizan- it's, no, I think it's Quizanjane, maybe? There's a Z in there. I'm not gonna There's a Q and a Z. And that's why I was like, I was afraid to attempt it. Quizanjane? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. She's adorable. I don't know what how to say her name. She's but... like 20 right now. I know. By the way, do we have to throw out the whole Smollett family? or Because like his sister's really talented. We're not throwing out know. the Smollett family, period. I'm not throwing anybody out. <laughs> Also, I'm just not surprised. I mean, it's 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 a non-event, people. Sorry. I mean, at this point, I, the, now the posturing between the Chicago PD and Jesse Smollett, I'm like, okay, this is this is like, it's weird. This is the af- yeah, this is the afterglow. No one wants or cares about. No one cares. Like, well, it's, given it's given given that department, it's weird. Well, I was just gonna say, I feel like I feel like they must be it's feeling say that. They must yeah. be feeling like, oh, there's a situation about racial politics where we have the high ground. Like, this yeah. is a, you got to milk that shit. Moment, until they don't. Chicago was very quickly very careful about going out because that weird. shit can turn it They do everything wrong. 
they it's do weird. everything it's like move on quickly and let I it go know. but it's they like shoot. growing off black men going the opposite direction away from them I'll who don't have guns question. and then uh and then hide the tape for a year oh, weird the whole reason the whole reason why these charges got dropped, I'm sure, was gross negligence by the Probably. CPD. Probably. And I, I, I would bet money on that. Gross negligence, which is why that whole thing got wrapped up. Oh, so yeah. Hard. There clearly was something they didn't want revealed. They were like, okay, okay, we dropped the charges. Like, yeah, holy shit, there's gonna, you got footage of us doing something terrible. And now they're coming up being like, we're going to sue him for the money. I'm like, you better be damn careful because... That's why it's Whatever. dumb. That's why the whole thing seems like a weird performance art all the way now, yeah, including yeah, with all the players. It's, I'm yeah, like, Ooh. it's come all the way around. At first, it was yeah. about Jesse, and now it's like now the Chicago Police Department is posturing, and I'm like, weird flex, but sure. Okay, uh, let's jump into topics because uh, <laughs> since we're fired up, let's just do this. <laughs> this is what happens um, when we do the podcast on a Saturday morning rather than oh, yeah. like at eleven at night on a weekday. We have a lot to say. <laughs> I know. <laughs> when it's at nighttime, we're so reserved. It's so much more NPR. Now it's much more Fox News. Um, Trump, Fox News. This this whole thing is going in a very strange direction. I've been called Donald Trump. Is that like the new Hitler? Is that how you end conversations? You're just like Donald Trump. And crash, like glasses crash to the floor. Pearls are clutched. Like clutched. Oh, okay. All right, everybody. Let's start with fraud. Uh, in 2003, the company Theranos was started by Elizabeth Holmes. And her idea was that you could uh, test 200 different kinds of diseases with a, like, what appears to be a few drops of blood, like maybe three or four. Um, by now, dear listener, you know how this story ends. It was all a lie. She made the whole thing up. The exquisite. And when I say exquisite fraud of people, dangerous fraud of people, um, the company's gone to zero, and now she's uh, waiting trial for several counts of wire fraud. And I want to bring that story along in focus, along with the fire festival. We all enjoyed all the blowjob memes from the the documentary. Uh, was that last year now, or was it earlier this year? Uh, 2017, Ja Rule and uh, Billy McFarland, who uh, was a – he was just a con man. Can we say that? Pretty much. At this point, like the, yeah. Yeah, a con man had decided that they uh, were going to put on a music festival. It turned out to be an exquisite scam again, where they took a whole bunch of people's money. And he ran that scam right up to the moment. He had those people come to an island where there was nothing for them and abandoned them pretty much. I don't know. Well, we can talk about all that. Anyway, it just raises the question of hucksterism and how is it that these, how is it that people are so susceptible to this and us as the public, um, how do we get here? But what I really am interested in when we think about this question and we can talk about, um, they mentioned this in the Elizabeth Holmes documentary that was on HBO. When it comes to um, invention, when it comes to Theranos, um, or, or when it comes to sort of passion or idea you have when it comes to the fire Festival, you know, there's this element, they kept saying this in the documentary, of faking it until you make it, right? You have to start with a dream and a vision, and then you have to build towards that. I remember when Steve Jobs got on stage and he slipped an iPhone prototype out of his pocket. I remember watching that and the audience gasped because we'd never seen anything about like that before. The realty is that what he slid out of his pocket was not a working iPhone. It was something with a screen that was that if he touched it in a predetermined way, it would have a predetermined reaction on the screen, like a, more like a video recording than a responsive device. But then he was working around the clock to make that a reality. How is that so different from what Elizabeth Holmes did? And how do we, in, in this Kickstarter age, what responsibility do people have to show full proof of concept before they bring something new to light? 
I like how you framed it. And I think if we dig deep enough there, yeah, I think the Theranos thing is maybe not so incredibly different in its origin from a lot of other things. The exception, the two big exceptions being one, she never pulled it off. It never was real. Um, But just like you said with the Steve Jobs example, there are probably lots of other things that we use now and trust that maybe started out similarly where there was a vision without a lot of reality and someone by, you know, a combination of lying and marketing was able to raise a lot of money and make the vision a reality, you know, based on a prototype that didn't actually work, et cetera. Um, So that's one difference is that she just never got to the point of pulling it off. The other, of course, is that um, in this case, you know, you're talking about, it's one thing if you are are investing in a phone that never, um, you know, never uh, is actually produced. In this case, you're talking about, you know, there were actual healthcare facilities using this quote technology unquote um, and presuming to, um, you know, actually address people's health problems with it. And so now you're talking about people potentially being undiagnosed, misdiagnosed, dying because, you know, someone thinks that they have tested uh, their blood for something and actually it wasn't, it wasn't tested for that at all. Those seem to be the the differences. Um, you know, one of the things that, just reading about these different situations. It's just amazing. Like, and we've talked about this stuff so many times. So I don't another None of it, I guess is really surprising, but it's just like, if you're in the club, right? Like if you're from a wealthy family and you have access to other wealthy people, the ability to accumulate investment and a ton of capital with very little, like, as you said, like no proof of concept, and you think about all the people out there who presumably have ideas, some of which may have a lot of merit behind them, but just don't have access to people and capital. Um, it's just extraordinary that a, a bullshit sham like Theranos was able to raise so much friggin' money from so many wealthy people. And again, where I'm sure there's so many other people with great ideas that just will never do that, even if their idea is so much better and more uh, more substantive, because they just don't. They're just not in those rooms. Mm-hmm. Well, I think what's interesting is, I mean, we have a clear cut um, example of one that is not true in the Elizabeth Holmes piece. But let's think about those DNA testing pieces. We haven't had those promise similarly outrageous things that it can tell you who you are down to like a tiny little island in the (laughs) South Pacific somewhere. Um, And people still reliably believe that and are still sending their blood off to have that information sent to them. So all that I keep thinking about when you bring, when I thought about this topic and when I've been reading about some of these things is possibility thinking, right? Possibility thinking. And I think it's always framed against probability thinking. So possibility thinking is really imagining opening yourself up to something brand new, something that has not existed. And that in many ways, people who do, um, who, who create new things have to have that. They have to envision something that has never existed in order for them to move forward. If they don't, they're trapped in sort of probability thinking, which is what is the likely outcome of this? And then they're making decisions based on logic, like because they've then begun to see all of the potential barriers, all of the pitfalls, and then they're stop, right? So the, I feel like you have to hold that tension as you were trying to craft and shape something, right? And so for somebody like, I think, Elizabeth Holmes, I think what she encouraged in people was sort of possibilities thinking. 
to an extension where they turned off their logic. At some point in time, it became very clear that she's actually not delivering. And then at that point, something should have been, been injected in that process. But she sort of massaged them continually through the doubts by say, by kind of continually sort of pushing, oh no, this is really going to happen. This is something that is just a touch around the corner. Wait, before you move on from that, I just because yeah. I'm I'm not sure I understand. So you're, are you contrasting possibility versus probability thinking, like homes versus jobs? Yes. Is that yeah? And, okay. In cool. some okay. ways, right? But um, but I think what 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 Jobs did was marry a little bit of the two. Right. He still maintained logic. He still maintained he still put in the work, the research to make it happen. But you needed possibility thinking because you needed to introduce something that was brand new. You needed to hang that out there for people. Like you just said, isn't that what he did? He said something that was entirely impossible at the time, but it provided a frame for people to act and move forward. Right. But he was already doing the background work. You said a ton of interesting things right now. One, I think jobs, I, th- I don't think it was impossible at the time. I think it was really improbable to get it down to that size to a price point. And I, I think at that point, it was just refinement. Holmes was promising technology that never existed and, and, and couldn't exist. I don't, if you two didn't watch the documentary, but there's like some teacher, this older woman who like, you can tell she was pissed. Like you could tell she just didn't like Elizabeth Holmes at all. And she was like, you know, she came up with the idea and I was like, yeah. Um, this is a fun idea, Elizabeth, but it's impossible. There's no way that you can mix that much blood with 200 different kinds of sap. Like, that's just not possible. So it was never going to be possible. So <clears throat> possibilities thinking is really intriguing. I mean, that's what got us like, that's what got us the StarTac and the Razor phone. I mean, if, if you don't get to see the direct line from Star Trek from there, then you're insane. Like, that's why those phones existed. At, at, even at those times, it was probable. I mean, because wireless communication has been a thing since the late 1800s. Like she was just, there's te- no technology for that. And also, before I give up the mic, you brought up like um, all those DNA testing things, which I am a vociferous enemy against. Yeah. So, I mean, people, do not send your DNA information to some weird third-party company. <laughs> what are you doing? Stop it. They own your DNA. Weird. Think about that. You know, the thing about that is that's about entertainment, isn't it? Nope. You send your you send your stuff off and they say, oh, you're East Asian. And you're like, oh, that's weird because I'm black and I've always been. So, you know, like everyone all the way back. But you're like, oh, East Asian. That's fun. You're not making decisions based on that, which is what Jason said. The thing about Silicon Valley coming out with a new type of phone or, you know, learn who your ancestors are or – Juicero, like make your own juice at home. Let's talk about that. That guy was insane. That's fine because I can sign in or out of your product. But when you're talking about things like blood testing or self-driving cars, well, then you need the public to participate. And if you're mired in possibilities thinking without a link to the rational or the realistic, people are going to die. Right. Or at least there has to be a process. I mean, I think that this seemed to me where there was a failure here. There were no regulations for her. She she used her relationships yeah. to bypass that process. So I I do have to say that society does have a process, or at least our country created a structure for us to avoid using people as guinea pigs for things that um that are wackadoo, right? And she simply just bypassed that structure, and that's why she was also able to 
continued to acquire funds and it, the project seemed like it was um, a true thing. Like, I, I mean, I think we have to understand that. I mean, if we take a step back with that, with where you were going, Tricia. So the, the concept of there being an innovation for which regulation has not caught up and and it goes forward and some people may be exploited. Some people might even be hurt. Like that happens all the time, like totally different situation. But you look at like Uber, right? So Uber, you know, breaks out and people are going into cars with people they don't know. And it's totally unregulated and people are catching up. I mean, Chris, your fair city now is regulating Uber quite extensively. I can't freaking name a tip without it being doubled down on in New York City because it's like, oh, you're tipping that much. We then we're going to take more money from taxes. So anyway, um, but you know, but again, like I think to Chris's point, like this, you know, it's one thing, and it can be very dangerous to get into someone's car whom you don't know and who's not been screened. So I don't want to minimize that, but it's totally different when like you are literally testing my blood to see if I have a disease and you're going to tell me an answer that has no basis. In fact, the, the other thing is that, I mean, one of the things I find so striking, which I think, again, like I do think some of these are thin lines, but where she was clearly across the line and with Holmes and Theranos, she was literally taking the blood and testing it in other technology, like recognizing she did not have a real mechanism for testing blood. So she was secretly testing it. I hate to laugh about it, testing it somewhere else. Like that is, you know, that would be like the Steve Jobs example. Like he starts handing out Blackberries where he scratched out the word Blackberry and put, you know, Apple on it. Like it's like a whole other level of. I think what I'm trying to get at though, is that we do have a process to try to vet wacky innovations and describe that process give us an example and she bypassed it like it's somebody said this she says this is not fda approved and basically what ended up happening was she had her her family connections allowed her to bypass the fda so it's like well well, there is an existing one right so it exists no it's true the fact that she got mattis to support you know and mattis so i think any of us were for for some good reasons, being like one of the you know few kind of rational, competent people who had been in the administration. But in this case, she got him to support deploying it in Afghanistan when it had not been, you're right, like had not been FDA approved. Like that's crazy. Someone with his credibility wanna... advocating for that. Mm-hmm. I think I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to think through sort of the regulation issue, right? Because like, that's what stops some, that's what, that's where hucksterism meets the road, right? You promise yeah. to deliver something and we and we have regulatory bodies that say, does this actually do what you say it does? Right. And because of her influence and her power and her money and her family connections, she was able to route that. Pro- she was able to get by that process, which then gave her the power to then continue to convince investors that this was a real thing. Right. So what does that tell us then about? Silicon Valley investors and the kinds of people who succeed or fail upwards and spectacularly. What really fascinates me about the Elizabeth Holmes story is what you two are talking about. This wouldn't have worked for just anybody. And this is something that doesn't get talked about enough. Her father was a vice president at Enron. So when all of that bullshit was going on, she was another bastion of integrity. Yeah. Well, but that's the thing, isn't it? When all that was going on, she was growing up, you know, and that impacted her in a certain way. She was able to get in all sorts of rooms. She had all sorts of money and access. And there were people willing to support her based on who her parents were, how much money she had in the social circles that she was in. But where does that leave us as the public? You know, those people in Arizona, when the Theranos centers opened, were going there being like, you know, do I have hepatitis? And they were getting results saying, no, 
when Tyler Schultz, I think his name, one of the whistleblowers in the documentary, was like, yeah, we gave about like two-thirds of those or one-third of those results were inaccurate. People walking around thinking they didn't have herpes or hepatitis just going about their business. Like, what does this mean for us, the general public? Like what, what it means for you us talk about when, regulating bodies, Trisha, but how do we regulate these people who are going to do what they want to do anyway when there's no science or anything, anything at all behind no, it? Just an idea. One of the things that's happened in um it's kind of like the um the financialization of every anything and everything and how people really think of regulatory structures as um inherently um combative to innovation. I think this is a really good teachable moment for people to understand that there is a reason why we ask people to go through painstaking process to prove what it is that they say they're doing. But I think one of the things that has happened, I think, and people have succeeded in doing to the public is convincing the public that regulation is anti-innovation, anti-possibilities um, thinking, anti um you know, um, the American, uh, you know, spirit of like, go out and do what you want to do. And, you know, anything is possible. We've really characterized those two things as, um, as a battle. And similar, you know, it's like, it's like how people don't buy into unions or any of those kinds of things. And so for me, it's a little bit of a wake up call to say, listen, how do we check these people? And why do we continue to support politicians or policies that erode regulation? But this is my question, because like, I don't, I'm, I'm sorry, Jason, you go. Well, I think on this one, I'm a little bit more with Chris. I mean, I don't necessarily disagree with anything. Well, I was going to say, I was going to say, I don't think anyone's disagreeing with Trisha. Like, it's not, right. I'm sorry, and now I cut you both off. It's okay. I, <laughs> Trisha, I'm not, I'm with you. You know, I, you know, I like a regulation, but I think my thing is, is that that failed here because of her access right? Yeah. Like Jason said, like her access to powerful people made yeah. like these regulatory commissions either look aside or go like, well, okay, well, yeah. you know, there were all sorts of exceptions made for her. So my question is, what does this mean for us? Because like, again, if Silicon Valley is moving into this public works area, mm-hmm. right? We're, we're on the chopping block. And if we can't trust the regulatory agencies, because these people have so much power, I guess I'm expressing a fear. That's I thought I found the Theranos story very frightening. I really did, um, and 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 that's what it came down to. Like she was rich and powerful, and she was going to do this to people. And she had Mathis, she had Biden, she had all these Henry Kissinger. It was going to happen. But what I'm saying is that a part of it is our participation in not checking wealthy, creative, rich oh, wow. people. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And oh, that's my, and, and us not being suspicious enough or asking questions enough and then not supporting people who lobby for extensive, like, uh, checks and balances all along the way yeah. of a process. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, because also, because I'm curious about how she was even able to conduct research studies on people. Where is like human subject research? I mean, how, how did she yeah. bypass those protocols as well? I think you, I think... <laughs> You're, you know I mean? you're, you're now fantasizing about uh, protocols that don't exist. If she was in a research firm, isn't there some sort of human subject body that you have to work with if you are testing your product? Like if you're a pharmaceutical yeah. company, there's a process, right? But I'm like, did she come into some space where there is no, there's no yeah, regular? I mean, the, the test that they ran on the third party equipment was great. <laughs> Who said it was though? That, that's the thing. They were like, yes. 
these are the blood samples we got. These are the tests that we ran, and we ran them with, on independent machines, quote, the same machines. Yeah, same and machine. look, the results are the same. I mean, Fantastic. Give I us mean, give me $800 kind of, million, dollars, please. I mean, the fact that you're raising it is super scary, obviously. But I mean, I'm thinking about a compelling case that is extremely similar right now, and it also involves regulation because pe- the regulators are the, the innovators. So they're, re- they're self-regulating. Like that's exactly what happened with Boeing. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, this is definitely going towards Boeing, which is a very different situation. Boeing, I think, is largely a very credible company that we all rely on all the so time to fly. So Jason, can you lay out the Boeing argument? Boeing created this new model of their plane. You know, again, but people all over the world, you know, fly every day on Boeing planes. And I really want to say, I mean, I, you know, there's a lot I'll talk about. I mean, I'm, I'm disturbed by this incident but we do have to take a moment to say like largely boeing has made flying very safe and reliable like it's actually shocking how safe fast cost effective boeing has helped make flying so i think they deserve a lot of credit it seemed like they were however however they were fast tracking (laughs) this new model they didn't want to have to go to the level of testing and take all the time that they should have had to take through a normal process so they you know they kind of fudged like oh it's not really a different model even though it had a significantly different system in it um and and the the fundamental problem i think chris that you were pointing to is you know i think what many of us learned through this is like we as a society we rely on companies like boeing to do a lot of self-regulation and you know we have an faa that is like minuscule compared to what their responsibility is and so they rely just like you were saying chris like oh we tested it and it's fine like that's essentially what our relationship with boeing has been and again for the most part they've been good actors in this case they you know they they rushed and fudged and um and that's scary and i think i think as a society everybody wants to say like oh we want to make sure that you know we're on safe planes and we're not you know dying on in plane crashes that aren't necessary and yet no one wants to pay the taxes necessary to have enough regulators that we're not relying on what a company is telling us even if they have good intentions like they're always going to have a motive to do things more quickly um, and to present it a certain way we think of regulation as a boogeyman right so everyone's like i'm not paying taxes for regulators what do they ever do for me and you're like bitch they keep your plane from not crashing into the atlantic and your food fuck. and your food safety. Yeah. I mean, think about food safety in this country. It is so much better than it could be because, like, we have people regulating it. But the question I'm bringing back around to you, Chris, is what are the processes that we find heroic and the people that we celebrate as heroes? And they look more like they're the, they they look more Elizabeth Holmes mm-hmm. than the people who are charged yes. to hold her accountable yes, and hold point accountable. And yeah. if we wow, if, drop you the know, mic. That's, what I mean when I said like <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. If you had a culture, not a culture of suspicion, but really a culture of respecting the grunt government worker who's trying to make sure that your food is safe. Your ki- I mean, let um, Nader, like right, make, you know, child safety locks, all of those things that people think of as inconvenient. And they all come across as like inconvenience. That's how they sell the story. And that's how we villainize people who are charged with trying to keep us safe. But the, I will also say, and this is going to sound cynical and I don't mean excuse or justify anything, but you know, there's something very unfortunately human about being seduced by the person in front of you rather than 
all of the processes that you don't see. And when you see that all over the world in all different instances with electing a certain president or having a certain Ayatollah come in and take over from a a democratic uh, government, like it's in our interest to like be skeptical and check that instinct to want to like go with the like visionary who's just going to solve all our problems. But there's something very, very human in that, unfortunately. But the thing is that there's something so distinctly American about falling in line behind someone who can make you believe something. You know, P.T. Barnum was showing people fake mermaids and his whole thing was like, well, you don't know it's not a mermaid. Therefore, (laughs) you might as well believe that it is. And that kind of sums up Theranos' thing um, and a lot of these people's thing. But I think not necessarily in closing, because I want to hear what you two have to say about this. I think my fear when it comes to this blending of public health, public works, and Silicon Valley innovation and making money. Again, something I said earlier, all these, it's not coming from the government, right? It's not coming from government contracts. All these individual capitalists who are like, I have a way to make life better, right? Whether it be through medicine or self-driving cars or whatever the hell it is, right? We're the ones who suffer when you take the shortcuts to make sure that your profit margins are large for your investors. And regulation, yes, I'm all for regulation. It's just that I, I don't I guess I'm I'm shadow advocating for we need some new kind of control on this. We don't want to stop innovation for sure, but I feel what happens with Theranos is scary. That's really <laughs> scary to me. You know, you- and I guess my question okay, in closing, my question to both of you, right? How do we encourage American innovation and it's good and it's bad, but how do we encourage that innovation while safeguarding the public? Because our regulatory body bodies, for all the reasons you brought up, Tricia, kind of aren't cutting. Well, I don't know if they're not cutting it, but I think the question you have to ask yourself is what is the public's expect? Who does the public expect to watch out for their interests? Because what you're saying is you're saying that there's a convergence of like, capitalist thinking, and public works. However, what do we know that the public have been taught about public works and and government and how government can fund things? Because I think this is why you have the space that individuals from Silicon Valley and other spaces can now enter. Your government is under-resourced. And until we sort of confront that and that challenge so that they can... They don't because the government doesn't necessarily have to just be a regulatory body. You know, many of the we've talked about this before. Many of the major innovations have come through government research and development. And then what ends up happening is when something succeeds, then it spins off and it becomes a sort of capitalist venture. Right. And so the question I want to put back to you both is how and and the government, in some sense, is charged with thinking about the public's interests. It's the only body that is. Nobody else has to. So my question is maybe not so much, maybe we have to reframe our thinking about the government that it's beyond regulation, but it also has to be able to participate in this space too, because it's the only one charged with thinking of the public. So um, I'm reminded in response to that and in response to what you said, Chris. So when I my during my short period of time in the government, conversations I was having a lot, and I didn't, you know, this didn't start with me, but I was definitely kind of an advocate for it is, Within the government, and I'd say even in the larger society, like we need to be able to quantify risk mm-hmm. and be able to make decisions collectively about what our appetite for risk is. 
because there, there is a tension, and I think this can be a healthy tension, but there is a tension between, you know, regulation and ensuring safety and innovation. Like there is a tension there. And it's really about where do you draw the line? Like how much risk are we w- willing to take? I mean, the reason this conversation was happening in the government is much of the time the government is is unwilling to take on risk. And that's very understandable. They're, they got taxpayer dollars, you got public health at, at um, you know, in the balance. But but if there, you don't take any risks, you don't advance. So there's there was a conversation going on in the government about like, how do we quantify risk appetite? So we're not just saying no risk, but then we're not being, you know, completely reckless with taxpayer resources and public health, et cetera. And it'd be great if, if it'd be great if we could have that conversation as a society. As I say it, I'm very skeptical <laughs> since we are not good at nuance in the public space. I don't know how that would happen. The other thing I would say, though, and again, I don't have a solution for this. The other thing that makes this difficult, if you look at the Theranos situation is, I mean, the fact that there is such enormous wealth in the hands of a few people, that means they they can withstand a ton of risk. Because if you've got five billion dollars, you can invest a hundred million dollars in something that might be a crackpot idea. And then you maybe you lose the whole hundred million, but you've got so much money and you've got such a diverse portfolio that you can withstand that. And the problem with that in a case like Theranos is it's not just your money at risk. <laughs> it's my health. And like you, you can withstand it, but like I can't, and there's nothing I can do about that. I don't have a solution for that. It's just yet another unfortunate symptom of the enormous like wealth gap and the fact that so much wealth is concentrated because like i think what you're saying trisha if we had if we if we were a more equitable society and we had resources more evenly distributed then there, there you wouldn't have that where a few people can can risk so much that i'm actually in danger um but we do have that right now. And I, again, I don't have a quick solution for that other than a major distribution of resources, which like is not a popular idea. <laughs> but you know what? That's actually a really good point because one of the things that I think it was a book I recommended a, a couple of episodes ago, um, it was the platform capitalism one. One of the things that he had pointed out as part of the challenge is because there was so much extra, so much excess wealth yeah. that people could afford to experiment right. and put money into all kinds of wackadoo ideas. <laughs> But actually, one of the things I guess I'm curious about with Chris, and I don't think we have a model for this, and I just, we need to do research on this more, is where does the public have to participate in this, though? Like, I mean, does the public itself have to be uh, a subject to this? Well, because it's the way that these products are rolled out, right? Right. In the sense that it's it's promised to us, it's like the Jetsons flying car thing, right? (laughs) If someone said, uh, oh, Chrysler's going to start making flying cars, right? And they're going to go on sale in 2021, you know, and if there isn't extensive testing of those things, or if they don't sell it to the military first to test it there or whatever, they're just unleashing on the public because that's the whole reason why a lot of these innovations are happening because you want them to be a consumer product. That's how we get involved is that we're promised a bill of goods, some fantasy, and we want to participate. Wouldn't it be great if I didn't have to drive my car? I just stepped in and it took me, it just whisked me off to where I want to go. Of course I want to purchase that. And you know what? Me wanting to purchase that, the Jetsons flying car thing, of course I want that. It's going to make someone say, I'll sell it to you. I will sell it to you. I'm going to make a lot of money and I'm going to make a lot of money, <laughs> me and my investors. Sorry, say that again. Consumer Protection Agency. What? <laughs> I mean, 
Well, clearly they need to get better at what they're doing. <laughs> well, no, but do you know what the point like you brought up Ralph Nader before? Do uh, we need a Nader for the for the digital age? Who's the Nader for the digital age? Oh God. Well, mm-hmm. some people would say Elizabeth Warren. Yes, thank you very much. That's all I wanted you to say. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it! Ooh, that was an alley supporting Elizabeth Warren. This is a good segue. I was going to say, wow, <laughs> she. Oh my god! And on that note, we're sliding into the next topic. Um, speaking of sliding into things, Joe Biden has. <laughs> uh, yeah, hmm. Huh? <laughs> Joe Biden has made headlines again, as he has over the past thirty years, but this time it's about ladies. Apparently, a lot of women have come forward. I think, is it seven or nine? A lot of women have come forward stating that Joe Biden has inappropriately touched them um, in the sense that he gets really close in on personal space. He's resting his forehead on the foreheads of ladies, like rubbing noses with them, you know, smelling their hair, putting his arms, his hands on their shoulders, um, touching their thighs, et cetera. Several of the women are saying they didn't feel it was sexual contact but they definitely thought it was inappropriate given um, the history of women in workspaces with men, in workspaces with men, the Me Too movement, and just the fact that he is a vice president and a very powerful person in, in general, that he should not be touching people like this. The most interesting part of this story to me, um, unfortunately, because men being inappropriate with women is just so de rigueur, that's not interesting enough. But what I find is really interesting to me is the amount of articles and people who have come out supporting joe biden which feels really counter to the moment uh and i just want to hear from you two starting with you jason uh because i feel like (laughs) me and trisha just did not let you talk last topic how do you feel about joe biden and everything that's going on well it reminds me a lot of something we talked about in a previous episode around tom brokaw and the like you know brett kavanaugh you know the debate is becoming you know you have on the extremes like some people like oh He's not fit to be president, you know, like no one should be supporting him. And then you have people saying, I know Joe Biden. He touched me once. I appreciated it. It was supportive. He's a great guy. He can never do anything inappropriate. It's really getting annoying. because It's like, but, but I have to say though, the things I've read specifically, the statements by the women who have come forward, I think they've been very measured and like, it's, it's, there just seems to be some better substance out there. One of the articles, I forget which of you, one of you sent that really went through like his whole career policy positions. That was really, really helpful. And like, those are the kinds of articles I really appreciate. And again, the statements from women who say like, I didn't think it was sexual. I don't know what his intention was. It made me feel uncomfortable and like men should stop doing this for lots of reasons. You know, this is a factor, but there are lots of factors like, I do not think my I am not in support of Joe Biden as the next president. Like I think between his some of his policy positions, some of his history, some of this kind of inappropriateness, like there's enough there for for me to say, and this is where I want to be like measured. Like, I don't think he's the devil, you know, like I don't think he should be locked up. He's not my guy for president. I think for lots of reasons, I'd rather see Cory Booker or someone else. If he gets the nomination. I think I will vote for him because I definitely think he'd be better than what we have. But my hope is that someone else gets the nomination. Trish. (laughs) Was that a weighty sigh? That was awesome. Oh boy. This is going to be good. (laughs) Oh God. She's got her (laughs) her hand. (laughs) 
I mean, oh, no. this is, listen, this is one of those moments where I, I'm just sad because I think the media environment cannot handle the discussion yeah. that I think yeah. needs to happen around yeah. Joe Biden. And so I'm going to be more frustrated by the conversation. And therefore, it's going to sound as if I'm dismissive of these women and even the way they have positioned their critiques of him, right? I'm not, I think you, you're completely right, Jason, in the fact that they're quite measured. And they are saying that it does not escalate to sexual assault. All of them have pretty much said that. But yeah. they are also honoring that this is a powerful man who is unaware of how that power translates to his overly touchy approach. So for him, while his touchiness for him feels like a way to connect and emotionally engage, because of his position and because of his power, many of the women for whom he's done that to don't feel like they have any recourse in the interaction to say that they are not okay with that. And that's a really powerful thing for those women to admit out loud. And I think it's a useful thing for us to understand and explore. But given the environment, given the political environment and the political reality of this moment, I like to think of this as the comparable to what happened to uh, who's the Minnesota senator who had to Al Franken, in the sense that we are fighting real villains. And I'm not saying that this is not villainous behavior on some. Stop apologizing. Just make your point. No, but I have to say it because this is the environment we live in is that there are real villains out here and they are not battling with us in um in a good faith way and i just think of this as i can't help but feeling as if it was a manufactured moment they're taking real moments that have happened to women and i think that people have looked at the polls saw that joe biden was comfortably ahead of everyone in the democratic field comfortably he hasn't even declared yet. Yeah. The fantasy of him. Yeah, and he's the, at the head of it. That's amazing, yeah. isn't it? He's at the, the white man, the white man in the race. Yes, and, but you know what? The two, but guess what? Everyone in the lead is right. Him and Bernie three, Sanders. All the, all the B boys, Bernie, yep. Beto, and Biden are in the lead. And the reason why they are in the lead is that ultimately people want to elect a white man. It feels like a purposeful distraction. Against a candidate that seems quite viable for whatever, for a number of reasons. And so I'm pausing because I just feel like it feeds into the media moment. And if we're going to reject Biden, I don't want us to reject him on this kind of moment. I don't think that this is, we reject him on the, on the Rebecca Traster article, which lists all of his policy failures. Mm -hmm. We reject him on that, which would be more substantive and would actually tell us more about who we should elect. I just think that this conversation is just, it feels messy and I'm not going to be satisfied with it. (laughs) Yeah. I I have to say, Oh God, I do not love agreeing with Whoopi Goldberg. I just don't. Oh, immediately it. stop agreeing with her what did she say i, I wish i could. well you know on the listen biden is old he's white that's the criteria for being him? on yeah that's the criteria for <laughs> goldberg being the president of your fan club the older you are the whiter you are have you worn blackface um those things she's like i'm into it so you know <laughs> on the view last week 
which is a show I don't watch, but for some reason I consume. It sounds like you watch it all the time. Why you are always care? referencing what Whoopi said. For someone who doesn't like The View and doesn't like Whoopi, you sure watch it a lot. You certainly do. Because she's a black woman. I hold black women in the highest regard. And it's just, it's like she's the embarrassing auntie. You're like, oh my God, can someone just please take her in the back room? Um, <laughs> on, on The View last week, uh, when all the, they were talking about this, and pretty much all those women, ex- save one, uh, was like, ah, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Like, he's a little touchy. Everyone get over it. Blah, blah, blah. And I have to say, I fully endorse what you're saying, Trisha. There are actual villains out here. And the only people who benefit from conflating the only people who benefit from conflating bringing a woman into a room taking out your penis showing to her and ruining her career with a hug that lasted quote a beat too long a beat too long that was the quote yeah the only people who benefit from that are the first kind of person the actual people who are doing the abuse right because the kind of behavior that we're focused on now is like you know, do I hug? Do I handshake? Do I touch women? Do I look at them? And that's not, that's just not the point of intervention, right? Like people bringing women back to their hotel rooms and sexually assaulting them is a problem. And I'm not saying you can't think about more than one thing at a time. I'm just saying, thinking about this sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like social infraction behavior is not the same as assault. And to putting them together, I think, is a supreme insult to people who actually suffer from assault. There are a couple of moments in your um, in what you were saying that I was made a, a little bit uncomfortable. Okay. Because I think I think what we're trying to talk about is that there are gradations, and that maybe on some level, that um, some behaviors might be indication of future behavior and future um, boundary breaking behavior. Because I think what these women are attempting to say is that um, Joe Biden is comfortable breaking, breaking personal, personal space boundaries, which is character indicative of something, not assault, but it's character indicative of someone. However, however, many of the women did not articulate that he had broken their boundaries. So that's an interactional issue there, I would say. That if I, I if something say, happened, he did say he broke the boundaries, not the sexual boundaries, but he did say that they did say that's that what he I'm saying. Okay, I'm yeah, sorry. I he, that's what I'm saying. He they said that they never shared with him that right, you know, and there, but but in having in sharing it publicly and he, in his reaction, I think it's indicated a lot about Joe which actually reveals a lot about who Joe is and why Joe you're on the first name basis with politics. Exactly. Biden. But it also, I'm going to call him exactly who he is, Joe. But you know, but I think it's 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 useful information because you saw he he gave a video response, right? And in many ways he was quite dismissive of what the women told him. And I think for someone who has positioned himself as evolving and is someone who has decided to sort of reframe himself as someone who is um, against violent, um, you know, supportive of the Violence Against Women Act and is trying to do um, to talk about like campus rape. I think one of the big parts of that is listening to women tell you about their experiences and honoring what they have told you. And I think minimally he has failed that test in the way he responded. He's failed that test to the women, but... I dare say he has passed it for the reasons why he's in the lead in the first place. 
which is that Joe Biden is an old boys club member. And there's something that resonates with middle-class white Americans that they feel comfortable with that. His behavior or his status as a white man? Because I, th- I don't want to... Both. Okay. I think they're comfortable with his slight dismissal of it because it it suggests that he is holding on to his power in a very oh, particular way. And which it's is a very true. Yes. And it's very um, Trumpian. Listen, he's on a range. I think we have to all understand he's on a range. But I think what people are trying to suggest is that if you are, if someone had said that to Obama, let's just be honest. If, he, if someone had detailed the things that these women have said to Obama, uh, said to Joe Biden, to Obama, do you think that Obama is, is issuing a video the way that Biden did? Do you think that Obama is not grounding it in his failure to acknowledge and in, in his failure to respect their space? Wow. The first but, thing I thought when you said it was that Obama doesn't get to make this mistake. Exactly. Uh, I definitely agree with that. Oh my God, the conversation would be, <laughs> would be very different. Very Whoopi different. would be against that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there's a part of that that's interesting. But, you know, your framing, Chris, I, there was another element that I actually really wanted to talk about with Joe Biden that was a little bit um, beyond the sexual assault thing. So, if you want to come back around to that, I'd love to revisit that a little bit because I'm thinking about Joe Biden as kind of a potential presidential candidate and not so much the sexual assault, but the idea that Rebecca Traster said about Joe Biden being that guy, that guy that appeals to potentially Democrat white men and Republican white men and the power that he holds as that guy. Jason, react to all of that. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Sorry, Jason. It was a lot, but... (laughs) I know. you. (laughs) Jason, well, react to all that. Um, use bullet points. Go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think both of you have made really good points. I totally agree that it's frustrating that the way, because of the very important conversations we've been having about women's role and how men treat women and um, sexual assault and all of that, that, you know, this is quickly just moves into that context, even though the gradation is so far from like what, you know, the president has been accused of and what, you know, so many other men uh, who have not been apologetic. I mean, I have a couple of responses. One is, and this is something I'm thinking about. I don't know the answer to this. I'm not sure I can think of an example where someone has given a full throated apology and that has actually helped them politically. Um, (laughs) I think that, you know, we, what we're saying, what you're both saying about Biden, which I agree with, which is like, you know, he kind of tried to show compassion without really engaging with what was said or without apologizing. I feel like we see that again and again and again on both sides of the aisle. Um, It's just like, and I just, I don't know. I mean, it bothers me that this is the case, but I don't know that anyone benefits from giving a full-throated apology. I feel like full-throated apologies lead to maybe people forgive them as a person but they don't they don't advance and like that's that's our president right i mean never ever ever apologize or acknowledge that anything wrong was done i mean i think again about kavanaugh who was you know i feel really something happened to her and i feel really bad that something happened to her but it wasn't me and i haven't done anything wrong ever like that is you know that is the moment we seem to be in and so i'm not justifying like i would have liked I, Again, like I'm not a, a huge Biden fan. I would have liked to hear more of a real apology. But, uh, you know, 
if he gave a real apology, that might've been the end of his lead. I don't know. Um, so that's just an unfortunate fact, I think, about the moment we're in. In wrapping this up though, uh, and talking about this, um, Trisha, what apology video are you talking about? Are you talking about the speech that he gave where he made a joke about it? Or did he make... He did like a two-minute video, yeah. right? He did like a two-minute acknowledgement. I I... Yeah. How, how do you apologize for this? You know how did you... he apologize for it? That's two different questions. How did he and how should one? I think what he did was he claimed a different era. Okay. So I, I had a feeling. So that's not so great. How should one apologize for this? Because that's <laughs> not it. Oh my god! I mean, it's the it's the blackface era question, right? There was yeah. a blackface era, so it was a problem before. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just I would like to answer that question just because, like, uh, in terms of like, what's the apology? I'm you know white guy, and I was not ever touched by Joe Biden, but <laughs> I think would be more satisfying is Joe Biden to say, "I clearly understand now that I have made women uncomfortable, and I am really sorry." to those women and any women I have ever made uncomfortable. And now I've got received this feedback and I'm going to be very thoughtful and careful before I enter other people's space. Like that I think is the right kind of apology. And to get back to what I said before, I think it would probably weaken his image in our unfortunately fraught society where we want everyone to fight, fight, fight. But let me just say that this is a that guy moment. This is a signal moment. Oh, and right. I think that's right. Exactly. He wants to make the alternate signal. No, it's a different signal. Right. Because you know what? If that's he if he issues um Jason's apology, he's a cuck. Yeah. Because the signal you have to give is that, that you have the ability to make people uncomfortable, and that's what that power that's means. Your power. Hats off to him because he signaled the way that is in keeping with his brand. I mean, I don't um, know if I, I'd no, recognize. No hats off. My hat is firmly on. I know, right? But this is the thing. What is the signal that you have to give to beat Trump if you believe that you need to win the white vote? And he has succeeded in giving that signal. And particularly the white male vote, which also is related right. very much to the white female vote. As much as people don't want that to be the case. Yeah, yeah. look at Trump I, election. I like, yeah. what you're say- I like what you're saying. Like, I, I get it. I just... It's a fun... It's not fun, right? You know, because I want to wrap this up and move mm-hmm. on. But like, and I know this can't be the last word because I'm going to say this and you're both going to have opinions. But categorizing the white male vote in this way all the time, I'm just yep. wondering what we're losing here. You know, we always... We want to talk about the white uneducated vote as sort of like this boorish, he-man, women-hating... Um, dude and i i know why that comes that way and i understand the politics of and and ideologies of conservatism i just sometimes i wish that we can work some other way to change that narrative so that's not what you always have to stoop down to appeal to like why are we signaling in that why are we singling that direction i i get it i get it no i want i want to i do want to i want to respond to that though because what i would say i I mean, and maybe I, told you I couldn't. Ha- I told you I couldn't. No, have the last I can't word. be the last word. Go ahead. You know, because you know, I want to be careful. I don't. I don't think. To me, it's not boorish and woman hating, although that's what gets protected. But I think we have a lot of white men in this country who feel Too under many. threat. They feel under threat, and that is something Trump obviously tapped into a great deal. And you know, you know, take like the wall. 
what is the wall? I mean, and you know, people actually show in polls, like no one actually cares whether the wall gets built, but the fact that he's fighting for it means that like, if I'm a white male, I feel under threat because all of a sudden I'm becoming a minority and um, I'm getting older. I don't have job prospects. I'm only trained to, you know, work in a coal mine. Like someone's out there fighting to protect me. Um, and, and that's real. Now I, where I agree with you, Chris is I, I actually, and I could be wrong. I'm no political strategist, and this gets back to where like I talk about, you know, why I'm Biden's not my guy right now is like I actually I would like to see the Democratic Party not obsess about winning that vote. I would like to see the Democratic Party double down on activating black women and progressives. Trisha shaking her head because she's like, we're never going to win that way. But like, that's what I would like to see, like radically pro equity, like not like. How do we stay moderate enough and, and again, like not totally apologize so we don't look weak as white men so that like white men who feel under threat feel like they have another option besides Trump? And if only... Go ahead, Trisha. Tear it apart. Wait, before she does, because I'm, I'm going to give you the last word on this, Trisha, but before... But I guess I'm, I'm talking more like an ideological space. Like if the Democrats could appeal to, to Black women, uh, yeah, all that's great, but also appealing to a different version of whiteness that exists and maybe doesn't have the numbers, but doesn't have its roots in, I want to hold all my power. I want to be in a a never ending nonstop dick measuring contest. Like I would like to see that appeal to, to, to white voters and hold them to a higher standard. And maybe it's to Obama comma Michelle, you know, when they go low, we go high, you know, that famously didn't work. Um, (laughs) But and but I still, you know, I believe that as a theory and ideology, maybe not necessarily like as a practice and a strategy. But anyway, but now, wait, Trisha, uh, sorry, wait, can I say one thing before Trisha's last word? I just yes. want to say, I Obama. So, so no, so for, first of all, first of all, I would say um, that I so where I would agree with you, Chris, and I do think it's possible. What's important is a message of empowerment. Now, unfortunately, the way Trump brands empowerment, it's it's totally like I'm going to be empowered so that other people are not taking my power. But Obama, I think, did a phenomenal job. Barack, Barack, Barack Obama, when running for president and running for reelection, did a great job of messaging empowerment for all. And in fact, we know for a fact the data is there. He got a lot of votes that then went to Trump. So like. He did speak, maybe not to all, maybe not even most, but he got a lot of votes from working class whites. Like he really did. And I think just when it was Hillary running against Trump, it was, and maybe for reasons of sexism or whatever, it was just viewed very differently and not well received. But I think it's possible to do what I think you're saying. I think Barack Obama did it. And I think other people could do it. Um, Anyway, that's all I wanted to say. Go ahead, Trisha. Trisha, wrap up this entire conversation about touching Joe Biden, appealing to white voters who aren't necessarily interested in keeping everyone else under their thumb. Go. I'm going to trust my um, favorite sociologist on this. Yes. I, can you name your favorite sociologist who is now the fourth co-host of this podcast? Because they go <laughs> all the time. Tressie McMillan Cotton. What, what's the name? Tressie McMillan Cotton. Like she, she's like Charlie in Charlie's Angels. Like we never see her, but she's always there. She's always there. No, no, because I think, I think, um, I think um, Jason's helpful in this too because of his framing. There is a voter that voted for Trump and also voted for Obama. Mm-hmm. 
And who is this mythical voter? And what does that mythical voter want to be? And who are they? And I think that mythical voter explains why there are three people leading right now, and they are white men. It is important for white people to feel good about themselves. And if you can call Obama call to their hope and to their vision of themselves in a shining way, possibilities thinking, let me bring it back to the first one. Round trip. Yep. And I think Trump did the same thing, but negatively, right? You're under assault, you're under attack, but I want to let you know there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with your way of life. There's nothing wrong with you dying from coal miners disease. Nothing. If you want to do that, bravo to you and let me bring you that job. However, the framing was at the base of it was there is an inherent goodness in you. So I believe that it is the person who is going to make that make white men feel good about themselves and by extension, make their white women feel good about them. That is going to be able to be resonant with that crowd. I think for me, the question is, does Biden remind you of your your old father who was a little bit gruff, mm-hmm. a little bit um, out of touch, means well? Mm-hmm. There's, there's that, people that's, that's going to... Do you know what I mean? There's people that's going to respond to the apology in that way. Oh, he means no harm whatsoever. He's like my dad. You know, that's how my dad might have hugged my college roommate coming home or whatever. <laughs> there will be people who will dismiss it on that level, right? That's how that that's how that's going to be perceived. And so, I mean, I in 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 conclusion, I think Jason was very right when he said a full-fledged apology would have signaled the wrong thing to the people who are looking at this for the right type of signal. But it's in contrast to what Jason said, which is you're not going to find someone who's going to push the envelope, right? Mm-hmm. That moment for someone to push the envelope, do we do we think we're in that moment? I'm not sure. And that's really the big question for me is like, are we in a moment to really have somebody who was going to push the equity piece? I don't think we are. And that makes me very sad, but maybe I'm just ultimately a practice, a pragmatist, right? (laughs) So I I look forward to the conversation, maybe like in a year when it all dies down, we can actually talk about the electability of these people. I mean, like we said last week, the the field is way too crowded and like there's, there's so much shit that has to go down, but I really look forward to that conversation. Uh, All right. Let's move on to media recommendations, which is something that you've seen, heard, read, or experienced you think other people should see, hear, read, or experience. Jason, go first. Okay, so I am going to recommend a, an article I read from Teen Vogue. And I'm going to say, similar to Chris saying he never watches The View, even, some, even though somehow he can quote everything that's said on it. <laughs> I don't read Teen Vogue with any regularity. But someone sent me this article, uh, Kendrick Sampson on masculinity, race, and why men should be more vulnerable. Um, Kendrick Sampson uh, has been in Insecure and um, How to Get Away with Murder. And, uh, you know, he I didn't know this until I was reading it, but he's, he's biracial. And it's just one of these articles where it's like, man, like, you know, you read certain things like this person, obviously what I'm about to say is, can never completely be true. But I read it. And I'm like, man, he's like got this stuff figured out. Like he just seemed centered and like, just, it, it's just 
awesome. I, I, I think it's something that men and boys should read. Um, it was just, I found it really enlightening and inspiring. Nice. Trish. I've not been inspired by anything this week. Am I allowed to say that? No. <laughs> no, you're not. So get to work. Think about something. Better find something real fast, Trisha. You got 10 seconds. <laughs> well, actually, I, I, I did find something. I was um I was looking around. Um it came across my timeline on Twitter. And it's actually an article that was in the Chronicle of Higher Education, actually. And it was making a case for the humanities. Um, as you all know, the humanities are under assault. Every year, people are like, why are you majoring in English? <laughs> What's oh, this going to do for me. you anyway? <laughs> Isn't that one of your majors, Jeff? <laughs> I, I, I have two degrees in English. Yeah, I was going to say. Why, why would you go into debt and attend an Ivy League school to mm-hmm. study English? Yep. Which is exactly <laughs> what I asked him in the mid-90s. <laughs> My parents asked it, too. I think it was one of the first things I asked you when we met. We were like 19 and you're like, I'm going to school for English. And I was like, why? Because that's a very Chris thing to say. I might have. I might have. That's a very Chris thing to say. I I had a professor who said to me when 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 he found out I was getting a master's degree too, he said, I heard you're getting two useless degrees for the price of one. Wow. (laughs) And that that happened. I did. (laughs) Wow. So uh, the piece is called Dear Humanities, Dear Humanists, Fear Not the Digital Revolution. And so I think the framing of the piece ultimately was that just because um, people other in other other majors seem to be taking over your field doesn't necessarily mean that you will be lost. What it actually suggests is that your field is more vital than ever. But you need to figure out a way to open yourself to the possibilities that other fields want to be in conversation with you. So there is room for historians. So just because, because I think what his point was that people were suddenly afraid because they were digitizing books and they were asking sort of weird questions about the books that were then digitized. They can look up things like, how many times did this word appear? And so it was becoming sort of like a kind of like, um, maybe like objectifying uh, humanist studies in a way that is kind of detracting from the larger humanist question of who we are as human beings, why do we exist and all that. So he was saying, no, look at this as an invitation. Look at it as an invitation for you to now begin to have conversations with people who are digitizing those books and reframing the questions about, can we take a look at how characters have been framed throughout history and, you know, ask real deep, meaningful questions. So don't, don't fear the digital revolution, <laughs> embrace it, but then challenge it by asking enduring questions. And I actually think in some ways it's really true because to be honest, the people who've been most profoundly helpful in this moment have been historians. Yeah. Right? Like, haven't you been looking at them? And like They've been framing Trump. They've been framing this moment in like historical long Historians view. are always helpful in, the, in every moment. Always. Right? Yeah. Because <laughs> I mean, everything, it's when you want to look at things historically where you, then you want to panic but then when you look at the long view you're like oh right. well, this makes sense yeah they exactly. take a step back yeah and yeah. otherwise we're just in the daily grind and not mm-hmm. seeing like the forest for the trees yeah so yeah so it was a it was an interesting pitch and i i think we we too have i think fallen on that like fear technology and then we often offer a long mm-hmm. view and we're like oh 
I want to suggest uh, a theater experience I had, which I always feel weird about theater experiences because it's like it's not something you can readily you can readily enjoy. Nice, it's a, nice to live in New York City, Chris. You, you know. New York elitists. Also, we went to the closing night, so now no one can see it. <laughs> oh my god! What so did you um, see the theater tell us. Uh, <laughs> On RuPaul's Drag Race on season nine, uh, Sasha Velour is a New York drag queen, and she won the crown. And uh, she's she's really different from the other drag queens who, you know, drag culture now is just all about being bitchy and sassy and fierce and catty and tweeting at people and getting in Twitter beefs and stuff. And Sasha Velour was always different in where she was elevating, or I will say, this is my opinion, she was elevating the art form where it's not just about, it's not just about lip syncing in a bar at 2 a.m., and she had a show at New York Live Arts, um, which had been touring in Australia, New Zealand, called Smoke and Mirrors. And it was an, a blend of, it was a drag show in that she was in drag, but like there was these visual elements. Um, she's lip syncing songs, but she's performing them in a way with video elements where it was just so pleasing to the eye and really beautiful. She's an amazing artist. And it makes what, you know, when you think about drag queen, especially in like this RuPaul age, it makes what all those queens do are doing, especially on that show, to just look like romper room children stuff. It was it was empowering and elevating, and it made us feel really great. It was sort of like a variety show slash an evening with. So she would come out and she would talk about her life and talk about how she approaches mental health and how she approaches this, that, and the other and talk about the numbers. And it was just absolutely gorgeous i just saw on her instagram this morning that the show's going on tour um in la and trisha if it comes i strongly suggest that you see it jason you're shit out of luck but uh also the thing that the thing i love about it is that in this moment now when drag is trying to find out where it is in entertainment because it used to be something that only you know very drunk gay men enjoyed at 1 to 3 a.m in the morning (laughs) Um, the show has given a new audience and I think a lot of drag queens are struggling with how to make their act palatable for children. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting. Sasha Valor, the, the smoke and mirrors thing. It was such a beautiful Fantasia that you could bring anyone to see it. You can bring it from, from eight to 80. It was gorgeous. And like I said, like it was so inspiring. Um, the website's still up. We'll link to it. You can check out. There's like a trailer. There's a teaser. And unless you live in LA, oh, <laughs> you're not going to see it. But uh, <laughs> but it's great. But, but you know what? Follow, follow Sasha Floor on Instagram because um, the looks and the, the things that she's creating is just really quite gorgeous. Right. And there it is. That was the show, everyone. Uh, you know, we started off fiery and we pretty much, we went that way. Uh, <laughs> We went that way. You two resisted resisted my uh, efforts to moderate the conversation. So, status quo. Good job. <laughs> no, that's, let, me, let me tell you something, America. Let me tell you about my two very best friends, okay? Mm-hmm. This, this thankless job. You know, I, I'm just saying, like, I do get 95% of all the money that we make from this. So, I guess I can't complain too much. But still, yeah. it's hard. the two of you very difficult (laughs) you're right by the way we haven't talked about this but it was great to see the two of you in person that was wonderful yeah Yeah. human interaction who knew guys we now 
in New York, we had a great goddamn breakfast in Hell's Kitchen. We had a great time. It was so lovely to see all of you. Jason, I don't remember the last time I saw you. It had been a while, I know. And we had the three of us haven't been together in two years. Yeah, maybe. Indeed. Wow. Uh, which was the last time we recorded all together. It was that weekend. That was a long wow. time. Crazy. Scroll back in the podcast, people. Whenever that happened was the last time we saw it. Anyway, on that note, uh, take care. Bye. 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 Bye.